So we've been talking for a few months now, actually since the beginning of September, about a biblical theme, a word in particular. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word that is rich in meaning and has lots of application to our lives. And so we've been exploring together from a biblical standpoint, what does it mean, what does it look like to seek shalom, to pursue it? and to invite the Lord to grant us more of it so that it would come to characterize each one of our lives in Christ. Now, if you're new to this topic, uh, you might wonder about the significance of this word because you don't have the history of what we've talked about together over the last couple of months. Um, I just want you to understand, in short, that, uh, you know, kind of by way of review here, that, that shalom really is a word that represents the life of blessing and fullness, the peace, the abundant life that God wants for us. A synonym that's frequently used in our own language these days is the word wellness. Shalom is wellness. It's often translated as peace, but it's really more than peace. And it's multifaceted. We've talked about this at length. It it affects how we relate to God. It affects how we relate to ourselves, our own internal sense of peace. And it reflects how we relate to other people in the world around us. So shalom is a a really important biblical concept for us to get our heads and hands around. But the challenge, as we've discussed, is that shalom doesn't come naturally for us. We live in a broken world, full of broken relationships and full of pain and adversity. We've talked about that and prayed about that already this morning. So shalom is something we have to work at. It's something we have to pursue. It doesn't just get handed to us on a silver platter. We are called to be peacemakers or shalom makers so that the shalom of God marks our lives and specifically our relationships with others. And that's the focus of this month in particular, this month of November, as we wrap up this series. We spent a month talking about peace with God or shalom in our relationship with God. And then we dug into the, the internal sense of shalom that God wants each, is, each of us to experience and the things that get in the way of that experience. And now what we're talking about this month and Thank you specifically to Owen, who got us uh, started last week with a message on being peacemakers in my absence. What we're talking about this month is the concept of experiencing shalom in how we relate to other people. What does that look like? How does that work? Why is that important? What does it take? So let me begin with a little illustration uh, of a principle that I want to talk about with you this morning, and you probably have figured out already, both from the title on the slide behind me and the the tenor of the story that I read from Matthew 18, we're going to talk this morning about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is critical to how we experience shalom in relationship to other people. So let me share a little story with you from my own experience in life. I was blessed, and I'm happy to be able to say this, um, with a great upbringing. I was raised in a Christian Christian family, and uh, looking back on it, the only way I can describe it is to say that I was was kind of sheltered. 
I did not experience the same kind of adversity that a lot of other people go through in broken families. Uh, and, you know, we all know, right, that as children, um, we can experience a lot of things that can be difficult and harmful to us that are really outside of our control as children. But they come to us at the hands of the adults that have influence in our lives. Sometimes our own parents, sometimes other people of significance can do things that are really hurtful and difficult for children to experience. I didn't have to deal with that. I was blessed and protected, in a way, from those kinds of experiences. So when I went off to college, I can honestly say, it's not that I'd never really learned anything about forgiveness, but I wasn't really tested. When it came to forgiveness, I'd never had to really endure really painful things at the hands of other people that forced me to work through forgiveness. But in college, that began to change. And, you know, it doesn't take much imagination. If you've been to college, you know, right, that college students kind of have a mind of their own, and they're not all very responsible. And they can do things that are very self-centered and very inconsiderate or disrespectful even to other people. So uh, I did not have the good sense to avoid joining a fraternity. I don't know why. I I regret it, but I did it. And uh, so I joined a fraternity, and uh, I had responsibility. I don't know why I did this either. Sometimes, you know, we just do crazy things. I had the responsibility of making sure that the, that the club room down in the basement of our dorm where our fraternity held all of its meetings was kept clean and orderly. That was a really foolish thing to commit to. Um, and so, of course, you can imagine that over time, my frat brothers... Uh, consistently made a mess of that room and did not want to take responsibility to clean up after themselves. And over time, I got peeved about that. So finally, not knowing what else to do, I left a note on the door of the club room. And everybody knew who, you know, who wrote the note. And uh, basically, I tried to be polite and respectful and, you know, thoughtful and responsible, and I just, you know, wrote, hey, if you use the room, blah, 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 please pick up after yourself, blah, you know, you, you can imagine, right? I can't remember verbatim what I wrote, but I was trying to remind my dear frat brothers that somebody had to clean the room, and I didn't want to be responsible to clean up after them. Well, lo and behold, what happened was perhaps one of the, uh, the earliest very painful experiences that I can remember of being hurt by others. Because, as frat brothers will do, they did not respond kindly to my instructions. In fact, some of them wrote on my little note all sorts of very derogatory things about me. And later, I found out that one of the people who had done this was my own roommate. I won't repeat to you what was said or written, but it was not kind. Let me say that. And I, in that moment, was confronted with a challenge. What does it mean for me to forgive so that I can continue to have any measure of decent relationship with these guys that I call brothers? 
what, what does it mean? How is it going to work for me to actually have a meaningful, healthy relationship with my own roommate after this? And honestly, that, that was a difficult learning experience, but it was a good one. It was a good learning experience because it forced me to come face-to-face with Jesus' command to forgive those who sin against us. So this morning, we're going to look at this problem of how people's hearts can become imprisoned by unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger through experiences like the one I've just described, or perhaps far worse. I mean, let's be honest. Many of us in this room have had things happen to us that no person should ever have to endure. And yeah, I don't want to take you back there necessarily because I know how painful it is even just to remember those experiences. But that's reality. There are incredibly painful things that we have experienced at the hands of other people or by the mouths of other people. And we have to understand, if we want to experience shalom, how to respond to those experiences. So, to understand the escape, there is an escape, that God has offered us from the imprisonment of unforgiveness and all of its effects, I'm convinced there's no better place to turn in God's Word than to this particular story in Matthew 18. In fact, um, there are lots of references on forgiveness, but I think over the years, and I, I looked back through my notes, and it's been several times over the last 17 years that I've preached on this subject, And most frequently, I've used this particular story to do it because I think it's the best one that Scripture offers us. Not the only one, but the most powerful and the most insightful one on this subject. So what does this parable have to teach us about the nature of forgiveness, how it works? Well, let me draw your attention to four really basic observations about forgiveness that come to us from this story. And here's the first. Forgiveness works best when it's based on our own experience of being forgiven by God. Forgiveness works best when it's based on our own experience of being forgiven by God. This is a key part of the parable that Jesus employs in this situation to teach his disciples. He literally puts the unmerciful servant's actions into perspective by comparing them with the incredible mercy that that servant had previously received from his own master. Do you realize? Do you realize that Jesus frequently, when he taught in parables, used uh, what's called hyperbole? Maybe you're not familiar with that term and what it means. Hyperbole is an exaggeration for the sake of making a point. And Jesus did this quite commonly. So in this case, consider the math, and you begin to get a clear illustration of the point that Jesus is trying to make. Now, in the version that I read, the Greek gets translated into gold coins just because it's less confusing to most people, most modern readers. But in the original language, and for many years even in the NIV, 
I remember back when I was younger, before they changed the translation, that it went like this, right? Did you know that the debt that the servant was forgiven was defined as or described as 10,000 talents? 10,000 talents. What's a talent? Well, we're not talking about a skill that somebody's able to do, that, not that kind of talent. A talent was actually a gold coin in the Roman Empire uh, that was basically so valuable that it was the equivalent in our day and age of about a $1,000 bill. Okay? So get the math here in your head. 10,000 talents, which are like $1,000 bills, would be the equivalent of a billion or so dollars. A large sum of money. On the other hand, the debt that the servant was refusing to forgive was, let's see, a few hundred denarii. So there are two types of coin that are referenced in the story, denarii and talents. If a talent is equivalent to about $1,000, a denarii is like equivalent to about a nickel. So a hundred denarii is basically a few dollars. The servant is upset because his fellow servant won't pay back a debt of a few dollars. But that servant has just been forgiven of a debt worth billions of dollars. So this parable then illustrates the ultimate double standard. It's all about being forgiven for something huge and yet refusing to forgive something comparatively very small and insignificant. And the point is simply that God has already forgiven us for so much more than whatever we need to forgive others for that we should be inspired to forgive by the grace of God at work in our own lives. In light of our own experience of God's forgiveness, we ought to be able to forgive others who have sinned against us because we've been forgiven. And what makes this parable particularly important is the warning at the end that if we don't forgive others, then God will hold us accountable. Did you catch that? That's serious. Our forgiveness of others represents and illustrates the reality that we have truly received and appreciated God's forgiveness of us. Unforgiveness, on the other hand, basically destroys our witness and our credibility. It's fundamentally inconsistent with who we are in Christ and how we got to be who we are by the grace of God. So if we really appreciate how much we've been forgiven for, because after all, right, as we all know, deep inside, we're not really good people, then we should naturally want to share the grace that we have received from God with others. Pass it along. Because of what God has done for us, forgiveness of others is a fair thing of him to ask from us. I think of a cross-reference here that might be helpful for some of you. Paul writes in 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. And here's the punchline. Are you ready for this? Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. There it is. There's the example. We are to forgive others just as in Christ we have been forgiven. So let me just pause here a moment because perhaps there's somebody here this morning that doesn't actually know that they are or can be forgiven by God. This goes back to what we talked about in September, peace with God, shalom in our relationship with God, begins by confessing our own sin and receiving forgiveness from the Lord of heaven and earth allowing him to speak over us, I forgive you. I forgive you for every shortcoming, every failure, every sin you've ever committed. That's the grace of God available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And let me just say, right, if if you're not there, if you haven't experienced that yet, this is what it all comes back to. This is the essence of the gospel, the good news of what Christians believe and why we've given our lives to following Jesus. It's because Jesus, through what he did on the cross, offers us forgiveness of sin and salvation from judgment. So then, as a result of what we've experienced, as a result of that experience in each one of our own lives, we are called to go and do likewise, to forgive those who sin against us, just as we've been forgiven. So that's insight number one. But let's, let's go a little further here, a little deeper, because there's a lot here to talk about and think about. Here's a second takeaway for you. Forgiveness is imperative to shalom or wellness because unforgiveness produces anger, bitterness, resentment, and hatred. That's the fruit, the bad fruit of unforgiveness in our lives. I want you to notice here the question that Peter approached Jesus with in verse 21 at the beginning of this passage. Verses 21 and 22, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, I think that this is actually a poor translation, and really what it should say is 70 times seven times, which, if you're a mathematician, you'll know is 490 times. But that's beside the point. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So this question then, Peter's question, comes on the heels of Jesus' instructions about what to do when someone sins against you. That, that's what Jesus had been talking about earlier in chapter Matthew, eight, uh, chap, Matthew eight, eight, chapter 18, if you look back. Jesus is talking about what to do when someone sins against you. So, so Peter follows up with a question. Lord, how many times? 
How many times should we do this? Seven? And, you know, I, I like to imagine there's this, like, eager beaver look on his face. Seven? You know, as if he's, you know, such a great student, such a great disciple, so generous and so gracious. Seven times, Lord? Wouldn't that be great? And Jesus is like, come on, Peter. Seven? That's all you got? Seven? His answer is actually rather staggering, if you think about it. Seventy times seven, which, you know, multiplies out to 490. But really, what's at work here, and I think Brian was hinting at it with his comment a moment ago, is that seven is the number of perfection and completion, symbolically, in Scripture. So 70 times seven times basically means that Jesus is saying forgiveness is so important, so essential, that you should just keep doing it until you know that it's complete, perfectly. Don't stop, don't give up, don't cut it short. Just keep doing it until you know that it's been perfectly completed. So, I chose the word imperative in my message title this morning for good reason. The command from Jesus to forgive here in this scripture and in other places as well is given in a particular verb tense in the original Greek language. And if you're not like, you know, into all this Greek stuff, hang with me and I'll give you a translation. The verb tense here is called the present active imperative, which is a fancy way of saying, don't just do this once and think you're done. You have to keep on doing this. You must keep on doing this. It's an imperative. It's essential. So what Jesus is trying to say in his response to Peter is two things, really, I think. First, he's saying that forgiveness is essential. It's imperative. It's critical. Don't compromise on it. Don't skip it. Don't miss it. It's vital to your walk of faith. This is not an optional or elective part of discipleship. It is vital to your own spiritual well-being and to the well-being of your relationships with others. Why? Because unforgiveness leaves you in bondage to what happened and how you feel about it. Let me give you an illustration uh, from history. I mean, there are lots of very... uh, poignant illustrations of this principle that we could, we could look to, but this one actually made the front page of uh, lots of publications because it was so significant, and it's represented in the picture behind me with this point. It's a picture, maybe you recognized, of a man named Nelson Mandela, who was the leader of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. He was a political leader and uh, a great man who fought the injustice of apartheid in South Africa for many years. And uh, if you know anything about his story, perhaps you'll recall that uh, Mandela was actually imprisoned by his political opponents, uh, those that were in power in South Africa and did not want to relinquish that power. And they bas- basically, they captured him and threw him in jail, and he was imprisoned wrongly, I would say, uh, for over 20 years because of his work to break the unjust system of apartheid. So it was actually uh, Nelson Mandela then 
uh, who, who talked about the power of forgiveness and the battle with forgiveness that he encountered when he was released from prison after over 20 years. Here's what he said. He wrote that his greatest struggle was not being wrongly imprisoned by his political enemies or against the battle, uh, the, the battle against apartheid in South Africa. His greatest struggle was actually against unforgiveness. This is what he wrote. And as a result of that honest confession, he became an icon of forgiveness. People think of him when they think of the, the power of forgiveness. He's one of the first people and, and the most significant illustrations that come to mind. Mandela once said, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping that it will kill your enemies. Resentment is like drinking poison and hoping that it will kill your enemies. Similarly, there's a, uh, an American author named Lewis Smeads. I actually had the privilege of taking a class from him in seminary uh, out in California. Lewis Smeads once, he wrote a book about forgiveness, and in the book he, he wrote, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner was really you. Set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner is really you. So we may think that we are holding the person who wronged us captive by the threat of payback, revenge. But in reality, we're holding ourselves captive. Unforgiveness is captivity of the heart. So the end result is that we are held captive to anger, to bitterness, to resentment, perhaps even to hatred because of what someone else has done to us. And in the end, if we allow ourselves to be held captive to those things, we will also be captive to our own sin and judgment from God. Unfortunately, for many people, the hurt feelings and the damaged emotions that are deep in our souls just continue to fester like an open wound, and they're, and they're never healed. They're never dealt with. The feelings of anger and bitterness and resentment and hatred even become the gates and bars that hold in our own feelings of unresolved hurt. For example, think about the actions of the unmerciful servant in this parable. This is a man, and we get just a quick little snapshot of it, but this you can tell from the brief description Jesus gives, this is a man whose life is consumed by anger. Anger. Look at this. Matthew 18, 20, 28 to 30. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins a few bucks. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Who does that? I mean, who really, who acts like that? Only someone who is consumed by anger. What was that? 
And, uh, I think perhaps it's worse than that, actually. But good guess. <laughs> Somebody who's angry, who's consumed by unforgiveness. So forgiveness isn't just essential for our own benefit, by the way, but it is essential for our own benefit. That's part of what Jesus is saying. It's also essential because it holds the power to help heal and bring reconciliation to broken relationships. That's also implied in Jesus' response to Peter here. If a person is truly repentant for their sin against us and we forgive them, then the relationship can be renewed and restored. That's called reconciliation. And there's a great account of this uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 5-11. to We actually looked at this last month, so I won't read the whole thing again, but Paul's writing to the Corinthians about a man in that church who had committed some terrible sins. And he basically says to the church in Corinth, you've got to forgive him so that he can be restored and so that your fellowship and unity in the body can be restored. And then at the very end of the passage, he says, he basically says, if you don't forgive him, you're playing into the hands of the enemy whose scheme is to try to outwit you. In other words, the enemy of God, the adversary, would love nothing more than to keep God's people in bondage. And he knows that the way that he can do that is by deceiving us into thinking that forgiveness doesn't really work. But it does. So Paul describes then in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 that unforgiveness is one of the primary schemes that Satan uses to outwit the children of God and to gain a foothold in their lives. If that doesn't sober you up and cause you to think twice about unforgiveness, then the Lord be with you. So the only key then to unlocking the gates and doors that imprison our broken hearts is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key. If you don't embrace forgiveness, you are choosing to leave yourself locked up in bondage to anger and resentment and hurt. The importance of forgiveness from God's perspective can can hardly be underestimated. And I think Jesus' response to Peter's question illustrates that. And yet, amazingly, we constantly underestimate the importance of forgiveness, don't we? I, I think this happens all the time. It's commonplace in the church that we underestimate the importance of forgiveness. But then here's the other thing. In addition to saying in his response that forgiveness is essential, Jesus is also saying something else. When he says 70 times 7 times, he's saying it's a process. Be patient with it. Don't expect it to happen, boom, right away. You don't just say the words, I forgive you, and expect all your bad feelings to go away immediately. This is a process that you have to embrace. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we just turn off the feelings of hurt and then everything else that comes comes from them. It's a process of letting go of the hurt by choosing to embrace forgiveness over and over again. In fact, I believe this is another reason why Jesus describes forgiveness the way that he does with his response to Peter. It's a process. 490 times may not be enough. 
It's not a one-off deal. It takes time for the feelings of being hurt by someone to heal up. But it can happen. It will happen if you embrace the practice of forgiveness consistently over time. So rather than overtly stewing on bitterness, some people do just the opposite. They're, They're so afraid of facing the pain of what they've experienced that they actually try to bury it and hide it and ignore it and pretend that it's not there. You think that works? No, it doesn't. In that sense, their emotional pain is more of an internal wound than an external wound. They avoid forgiveness altogether and just hope that they can get on with life and forget about what what happened. But friends, that doesn't work. That's not the advice that Jesus offers. So in cases like the one that Jesus describes here, the only choice before us if we want to walk with Christ and in Christ and represent the grace of Christ at work in our own lives, the only choice is to practice forgiveness and to practice it consistently. Jesus is saying it's essential and it's a process. Now, let's talk with the few minutes we have left, and it's not long, but I'm going to try to cut to the chase here, about how this actually works. How do we really do it? Just two quick insights that I hope will help you along in the process here. And the first is this. Forgiveness begins with acknowledging the pain that we've suffered from another person's actions or words and trusting that forgiveness is the best way to respond. I want to take you to the end of this text in Matthew 18, verse 35. It's the very last statement that Jesus makes after he shares the parable. And there's something really significant to think about here, something really important to see. Matthew 18, 35, Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. From your heart. Interesting little phrase that Jesus uses there. And let me suggest to you that it's not just a throwaway, you know, little phrase. It's not insignificant. What Jesus says, and we might be tempted to just like read right past it and not really stop and pause and think about the the meaning of it, but what he says is really important about how forgiveness actually works. What does it mean to forgive someone from the heart? When Scripture speaks of the heart, it's really referring to the executive center of a person's life, where the mind, the will, and the emotions all work together to determine our actions. Hey, kids, welcome back. Come on in, have a seat with your folks. We're going to wind up in just a few minutes, okay? So the heart is the executive center of a person's life, where the mind, the will, and the emotions all work together to determine our actions. So this is the place deep in our soul that is actually wounded, emotionally wounded, when others sin against us. That sin lodges in the heart, and there's hurt, there's pain, emotional pain that we suffer 
when someone else sins against us. So when Jesus says that forgiveness has to come from the heart, what he's saying is you have to get in touch with what happened to you. You have to acknowledge it and how it affected you. You have to face it. You can't hide from it or try to forget about it. You know, there's an old misnomer, right? You've probably heard it said before, forgive and forget. Nope, wrong. (laughs) Sorry. That's not how it works. In order to forgive, you have to remember what happened. And you have to face it with full honesty. You have to recognize the pain of what was done or said so that you can forgive from the heart. So forgiving from the heart then involves recognizing the emotional damage that was done by someone else. As we forgive, we're admitting that we've been hurt and thereby inviting the Lord to touch the emotional core of our heart through the process of forgiveness. No one truly forgives without suffering and without accepting the pain of another person's sin against them. I love the example, uh, actually, that Neil Anderson uses in his workbook called The Steps to Freedom in Christ. And he's very specific about this. He lays it right out in black and white, says, here's how you should do it, all right? Because he's seen so many people try to avoid actually doing it. They'll do anything to avoid actually having to forgive someone. So he says, pray it like this, Lord, I choose to forgive so-and-so, fill in the blank, for such-and-such, fill in the blank and how it made me feel blank. Fill in all three of those blanks in the sentence. I choose to forgive this person for what they've done and how it made me feel. Get in touch with the emotional core of how you were wounded so that the forgiveness can touch that broken place in your heart. Forgiving from the heart means choosing to forgive by acknowledging the damage that was done. It's allowing God to bring those painful memories to the surface of our consciousness and then acknowledge how we feel toward the person who hurt us and then choosing to forgive out of that place of recognition and acknowledgement. So that's number one. And here's the second very practical takeaway, very practical insight about how to do this. The other thing that this parable suggests to us in no uncertain terms is that forgiveness is only accomplished over time as we choose to extend it over and over and over again. So, in short, what I'm saying is forgiveness is both a process, but it's also a choice to consistently engage in that process. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. It's something we have to decide we're going to do. You know what? You will probably never feel like doing it. Let's be honest. There's something in our hearts that resists the concept. Somehow we think 
that it doesn't work. We think that it's better to our advantage for some reason to hold on to that hurt and bitterness so that we can somehow repay the person for what they did or said. But what Jesus is suggesting, what he's really saying quite clearly is that you have to choose to do it. So the whole outcome of the parable hinges on this one thing. The unmerciful servant chooses not to release his own debtor, the other servant who owes him a few bucks. He chooses instead to focus on his own feelings of anger, desperation, and anxiety instead of focusing on the grace and provision of God. So Jesus is saying no matter how small or great the offense against you, you have to choose to forgive. It's an act of the will. Recognize that since God asks or commands us to forgive, it is something that we can do. It's not impossible. Even when we don't feel like it, we can still choose to do it anyway because we know it's the right thing to do according to God. So what does the choice involve? It involves not holding someone's sin against them any longer. The way I like to think of it is this. You're, you're choosing to release them from your own judgment over to God's judgment. You're taking them off of your hook and placing them on God's hook instead. So if a person repents of their sin, if they recognize what they've done is wrong and hurtful to another, and they confess that sin to God, he will forgive them, and so should we. But if somebody does not acknowledge their sinfulness, if somebody does not confess their sin, we can still choose to forgive. Our choice to forgive is not dependent upon their apology. Because if we choose to forgive, we're just taking them off of our hook and putting them on God's hook. He will deal with them accordingly. So this is a choice that we can make at any time. But the danger is that we often want to wait until we feel like it. Which may never happen. So we have to make the hard choice to forgive even when we don't feel like it. Understanding that God will honor that choice and begin to heal our damaged emotions as a result of it. Choosing to forgive causes the enemy, Satan, to lose the foothold that he has in our anger and unforgiveness. And friends, this isn't just good advice. This is the way of life that Jesus embraced and modeled for us. You remember Luke 23, 34? What did Jesus say? What were, what were some of his first words after he was nailed to the cross? Father, you know it, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He forgives the very people that are crucifying him. He didn't wait for them to ask. He didn't wait for them to confess their sin or their wrong. He still suffered the consequence of death on the cross. But he chose to forgive those who nailed him to it. Friends, because of what Jesus has done for us, forgiveness is a fair thing of him to ask. 
And it's a good thing. It's, a, it's the right thing. Forgiveness, if you embrace the choice over time, will release you to experience greater shalom, both internally and in your relationship with others. There's a lot more I could say about this, but our time is up. So let's pray.